Hello, hello. Welcome to Twilight Football here at FNR Football Nation Radio. No Nick Tabano this week. He's feeling a bit under the weather, so we have a more than capable replacement in Pakua Frimpong. Pakua, welcome. Haven't seen you in a while on air. It has been a while, and I'm. Uh, hopefully I can fill into the shoes of Nick. He is probably a few sh- shoe sizes bigger than me, but I'll try my best. Well... You've got one advantage over him already, and that's that your internet connection doesn't sound like it's from 1997. So I'm proud that the suburbs are doing the internet connection well because I question the NBN every day, so I'm okay now. All righty. We've got a lot to get through today. Uh, We've got Ben Smith uh, joining us to talk about Diego Castro and Perth Glory. Uh, Look, I have to be careful about messaging him. They're three hours behind. Three hours (sighs) You can't trust anybody who's living in a different time zone, I'm going to be honest, Josh. You can't. So, it's Twilight Football, but he's going to be joining us on his lunch break. And uh, <laughs> we've got FFA Cup to talk about, a new Channel 10 lineup, and also some European stuff, Champions League preview, Mo Salah's fat contract extension demands, and whether they're worth paying. And the pressure on Ole Gunnar Solskjaer continues to mount. All that coming up in the second half of the show. But we will start with the FFA Cup. It was... I guess you'd call it a derby. Is it a derby if these teams haven't played before in a competitive match? Adelaide Olympic and Adelaide United? I don't think so, because if Western United and Melbourne Victory and City aren't going to be a derby, then I guess that, you know, Adelaide United versus... Sorry, what's the other Adelaide team? Is name again, Josh? Olympic. Oh, you see, if I don't know it, it's not a derby. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Your ignorance of the South Australian NPL Pakua shouldn't be held against them. Uh, but they did. No. I thought they... they Prove themselves on a pretty important game with a very, very young lineup. Um, Michael Cittadini and he's uh, 18 years of age, and then two young Constantopoulos brothers making up the midfield. But it was the goalkeeper who stole the show. Uh, day job as a wildlife photographer, uh, but he was a bit of an animal between the sticks, Lewis Moss, saving Ben Halloran's penalty and his antics before the penalty. Uh, was just top, top uh, gamesmanship, pouring water on the penalty spot. Ben Halloran didn't look too pleased with him, and I, I think it gave him the edge with the uh, with the save. I love any level of, you know, just a little, just getting in the head. Any goalkeeper does it. My favourite goalkeeper, Amy Martinez, is the master of it at the moment. Mm. So, and I, it pays off more when you do save the penalty or they miss it. It means that it was all worth it, so I'm okay about it. What have you made of Emmy Martinez and his uh, pelvic thrusting celebrations after saving penalties? I mean, it's a bit sort of 1990s Duke Nukem, but it seems to work for him. I love it. I love for goalkeepers with personality. The more goalkeepers with personality, the more I have faith in them to save the goal because they're wild and they'll do anything and I'm about it. So that's why you don't like Bernd Leno because he's a boring German blank canvas. I don't, Josh, if we get into a discussion about Bird Leno, we'll be here for days, okay, because I cannot, <laughs> he's, that's not the goalkeeper for me, if I'm honest. Uh, well, we'll get into Arsenal later, but uh, look, Olympic, I thought, gave a good account of themselves. It's always difficult in these circumstances uh, when you've got a professional side coming up against a team who's had a bit of an interrupted season, has a really young squad, but I thought they gave a good account of themselves. And of course, it actually is uh, finals time uh, in NPL South Australia. So maybe that's why they were in decent nick. But uh, look, I, I I do wonder about what the quality or, or lack thereof of the 
FFA Cup broadcasts uh, bodes for the A-League this season because I don't know if you noticed, Bakur, but on the main camera for the entire game, there was this constant kind of static high-pitched whine. And when they cut to camera two on ground level, it went away. So I think someone had just forgotten to mute the inbuilt mic on the camera and no one fixed it for the entire broadcast. And it was super pixel. It was uh, was honestly like an MPL quality stream. And, you know, I I felt it seemed like they were cutting corners. I think that weirdly enough, I feel like these these FFA Cup games should be there. They should be perfecting, you know, their camera setup already because if it's like this now, when we get to the A-League, if there are problems, it's going to be a much bigger audience critiquing them on social media and nobody wants that if it's just the start of a new partnership. Yeah, and on that note, I mean, there is a new Channel 10 lineup announced. Not a Paramount Plus lineup, I note, because they've only announced one play-by-play commentator, which I think it, through reading through the lines in this cryptic language on the press release, it just means that Simon Hill will be doing the main game. He's not going to be commentating you know, 10 games per weekend <laughs> in, across the, you know, A-League and W-League, or in fact, A-League men and women, I should say. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, so, we will have further announcements, I'm sure, as to, you know, the actual on-air uh, commentators, play-by-play uh, people that will be joining him in those ranks. But what did you think of the the lineup they announced? Because I saw a lot of familiar faces in that crew. I think it's a lineup that's very safe. I mm. think they are trying to test the waters to make sure they don't go too far out there to turn people away. And they've got an audience that looks relatively similar to the Fox lineup with a few people from Optus. And with that, you know, it is what it is at the end of the day. It's not, it's not amazing. I'm not looking at the lineup going, this is the reason I'll be watching the game, but it's certainly not going to be the reason I don't watch the game. I also wonder about the wisdom of having two essentially experts uh, who are supposed to be, providing kind of critical analysis who have such deep roots in two A-League clubs. And I'm talking about Bruce Gita, who I know is not at Adelaide United anymore, but, you know. He he was just there last season. Literally their director of football last season. And Mark Milligan, who I'm pretty sure is a current coach at MacArthur. So I just wonder whether they're going to put those guys on those games and how much of their... This is the problem in Australian football because everybody knows everybody. Everyone's so afraid of offending anybody. And yeah. I felt that was the case with some of the Socceroos games that have gone to yeah, our. We definitely. would like to see a little bit, you know, harder hitting criticism. It all seemed a little bit white bread milk toast for my taste. It's the. I don't think you're watching these games to have any significant analysis because the analysis, the better analysis, unfortunately, sometimes is on Twitter. Yeah. Even with all opinions. And. And it's game. much easier to spout that kind of stuff on Twitter than yeah. it is when the cameras it, no, are on you. No, definitely, it is. It, you know, you don't want to offend anybody, but also they do have a job to do. And I would, I would appreciate, especially when I was watching the Socceroos games, some of the analysis didn't because they were so afraid to criticize. Some of the analysis didn't really match up with the game when I was watching, and I was mm-hmm. like, that's not really the critique that I would have given. It's, it's like the fourth or fifth critique, not the first problem with the game. Hmm. And you know, but what are your impressions of the soccer? Is by the way, because you haven't had your chance to, to voice your opinion uh, on, on uh, Arnie's eleven-game winning streak and the end thereof. I, as a person who's not who doesn't watch the soccer, is enough. I find myself very disinterested. 
in their games when I do watch it. It's not inspired. The midfield looks they could have 10 players in the midfield and not a single pass would make it to another player. Like, I don't understand. It's so congested. I don't it's understand brutal. it. No, but, and then going, they just seem very separated. It's like the midfield and the attack. I don't see any creative play in there. And that's a real problem for me. Even though they, they're they winning 11 games, obviously you can only beat the opponents that you have. But the opponents haven't been great and they haven't been convincing, which always scares me when you reverse somebody and then they did Japan who weren't great are, are a better op- opposition and they, they just didn't hold up for me personally in that game. Ivan's come through on the new broadcast team. I just want to see who's going to challenge the common opinion. Who's going to be the Roy Keane, the Gary Neville, the Jamie Carragher of this lineup. Uh, I, I think Australian football might need a Roy Keane. It, someone who is contrarian and uh, starts conversations. I mean, we've, we've had one on our, on our, Watch alongs a lot of the time, and I think it increases the uh, the interest in in our. Uh, it's sometimes going to put a few people's noses out of joint, but those headlines that come from the uh, analysts in the studio going off on one, even if it's completely ridiculous, actually filters through to a lot more coverage of the sport. And that's what drives the kind of engine of the English football media is guys like Roy Keane, you know, criticizing Paul Pogba or whatever, um, going on some sort of rant. And usually there is backlash to that. But we need somebody in Australian football who's willing to to take that on and voice the unpopular opinion and get the blowback for it because then we, we actually have a discussion as a result. My The reason I love... The, the contrarian view, even if I'm not a massive fan of it, is it engages discussion with the panel. So then we actually find out what their mm. realistic opinions are and they actually have to back it up as opposed to just a blanket statement. Oh, you know, the defense wasn't good today. Well, why wasn't it? You know, if you, you know, if the contrarian decides to pick out a specific player, we can have an actual discussion about it and you get better engagement along the way. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we've also had some NPL Victorian news with uh, the news that Ivan Franjic and his brother Joey will both be joining Heidelberg United this season. It did make a little bit of a stir in the last campaign uh, when Ivan Franjic signed for George Cross, and I don't think he managed to play much, if at all, given uh, the season being suspended. So he's gone over to join his brother at Heidelberg, and honestly, a uh, very wholesome story for mine. Because Ivan Frenich could still do a job in the A-League if he wanted to. Most certainly could. He was actually, going up, he was probably one of my favourite players in the A-League. I don't know why. I loved watching him at Brisbane Royal. Yeah. Was, he was just... He's a very adventurous right back. He is, he is but I, I appreciate that because it means you're going all out, sometimes to the detriment of your team, leaving a massive gap behind you. But I love him as a player and I, you know, I'm, I'm happy for Heidelberg, even as an Oakley Cannons fan. It's going to make the league a little bit more competitive. Um, you know, I like to see better players in the NPL. Absolutely. And, you know, Ivan Franjic is a guy who has a legendary love of his local clubs and the clubs he grew up playing for in the junior ranks. So much so that I believe, and this is a story I've heard, and I apologize if it's, apologize if it's apocryphal, but I believe at the yearly Croatian Cup tournaments, Ivan Franjic used to use a fake name and go and play and he wouldn't even play right back. He'd play centre mid because he'd just absolutely boss it. But he'd go play without the permission of his A-League club. I love it. I love it. I'm all about it. You know, any, the stronger the, you know, the, pyram- the pyramid is, 
the better it is, you know, to watch. So, mm. you know, I will be definitely watching Heidelberg a little bit more with uh, with my eyes wide open for their games. Yeah, and, you know, George Katsakis has been so ridiculously successful there. Last season, when they were still in finals contention and looked to be roaring back in the second half of the campaign, was probably his worst season to date, which yeah. is, the longevity is, is pretty extraordinary. We'll have to get Cats uh, on it at some point just to talk about how he keeps going year after year and putting together new sides because they've had some of the super teams of the modern era over at Heidelberg. And uh, Joey and Ivan playing alongside each other, the brothers, I wonder where they'll play. It'd be interesting if, if Ivan decides to stick it right back or if he does try and go boss it in the middle of midfield or something. I think I doubt that he'll be playing right back. I really see him playing in the midfield just because he provides that experience mm. um, and he, he can, he's great with the ball. So I think I'll be, we'll be seeing him a little bit more in the midfield as opposed to playing down back. And for Joey, I mean, he suffered a horrific injury. I don't know if you remember when uh, the knee of his own goalkeeper went straight into his face, and I think he got a depressed eye socket and a fractured cheekbone uh, at Melbourne Knights. And, and last season, he went to play state league for, for Strathmore Split. So it's great to see him fully recovered and, and back in action. But uh, we'll leave it there and go to a break because, because we've got Ben Smith waiting for us on the other side. Uh, he's going to talk to us about Diego Castro, Perth Glory, and the legend that uh, that man, the magician with his wonderful beard, leaves out west. And we're back here on Twilight Football, FNR Football Nation Radio. It is uh, not Twilight where our next guest is at. Three hours back in time over in Perth, Seven West Media's Ben Smith. Ben, how are you? Hey, Josh, thanks for having me. Uh, it's our absolute pleasure because I think not enough has been made of the departure of one of the great legends of the A-League's modern era, and that is Diego Castro leaving Perth Glory. He penned a very classy open, open letter to the supporters, uh, which was uh, very poetic, I thought. I'm not sure if he wrote that himself or if it was ghostwritten by the PFA, but uh, it was a lovely sentiment. It does feel yeah, yeah. slightly unceremonious to me the way he's been sort of shoved out the door to make room for Daniel Sturridge, though. Yeah, it's it's been a weird, uh, like you say, it was it's kind of it's been a very weird ending to the uh, career, or or at least his you know this, this, his stint with Perth Glory, uh, given he is one of the A League's greatest players of all time, um, and you know probably playing a part in that was a fact. Where at the end of last A League se- A League men's season, he obviously said, you know, there were rumours he was going to retire. You know, he didn't have a hadn't signed a contract for the upcoming season. Uh, everyone, you know, but it was strongly hinted by you know both by the man himself that he was going to retire. He had that final game at uh, at HBF Park where he you know said farewell from the fans for it seemed at the time for, you know, one last time, but he never officially said that he was going to retire. Um, it felt at the time like that was the end of his glory career, but then there was never any official announcement about it. Um, and then, you know, as the off-season kind of progressed, I think there was a, a sense of optimism amongst Perth Glory fans that he was in line to return. There were reports in the West Australian by my colleague Nick Taylor that... Uh, you know, the glory were in talks with him to bring him back for another season for, you know, a last dance, so to speak. Uh, apologies for uh, using that cliche. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but yeah, he, he did kind of see, you know, about halfway through the offseason, it kind of felt like, you know, he was going to return to the glory. Uh, and then, you know, kind of, I kept reading these reports that, you know, the glory was still in negotiations with him and they were still in negotiations with him, still in negotiations, negotiations with him. And then all of a sudden, you know, suddenly the season's, you know, a month and a half away. Uh, he's still not signed. And uh, yeah, we I mean, fast forward to now and yet yeah, the book is finally closed. You know, like you say, it was a bit unceremonious with, you know, him, I guess, being uh, shoved out the door, you know, for, so they could sign Sturridge. But by, by all accounts, you know, from what I've heard from, you know, what's been reported, uh, the glory did want to bring Castro back. I think Castro was, you know, he was certainly open to the idea of coming back. Um, it sounded like his uh, wife was, you know, was a bit homesick, uh, that she wanted to return to Spain. And that was, you know, where this kind of uncertainty came from. You know, I think he, he obviously wanted to do right by his family, which you know, I, I think we can all respect. Um, and, yeah, so he, I think he just kind of held off on pulling the trigger on a new deal with Glory. And eventually the Glory kind of felt, well, look, with all respect to Diego, and everything he's done, we do have to finalise our playing squad. We've, mm. You know, there's a chance we can sign Daniel Sturridge uh, here, who's, you know, uh, you know, if he stays fit, he's an amazing player, but he's also, you know, seven or eight years younger than Diego, who is fast approaching 40. Do we really want to be spending that amount of money on, uh, you know, someone who's, you know, close to his, uh, you know, close to 40 when we can spend that money on Dan- Daniel Sturridge? So, it has been a very unceremonious, you know, departure. But, you know, from a club side, I can kind of understand it. It does seem like they were really, you know, keen to have Diego back. And I think Diego, there was a big part of Diego that wanted to stay. It was just, you know, family, you know, family wanted to return to Spain, which, you know, they've been in Australia five years. And, you know, with the pandemic over the last 18 months as well, must be, it must have, that, uh, you know, gap between Australia and Spain must have felt even larger. So, um, yeah, can really sympathise with with both sides, really. Do you think that his decision not to play in the bubble, I know this going back a while, factored into this at all, and also his, like, the gen- general sense of him being slightly unreliable and going AWOL a little bit? You know, there's there's been instances, you know, of course with the bubble and, you know, him sort of going off in a caravan and deciding that he didn't want any part of this, you know, COVID-riddled uh, country. And, and uh, you know... He's always seemed to be a little bit uh, of an enigma, a bit of an outsider. And as you say, with the the contract negotiations, him not quite coming to the table there. Do you think there's part of you know the management at Perth Glory that said oh, he can't really accommodate this guy and his eccentricities anymore? Um, well, first of all, I wish he would have filmed what he did when he went away on that kind of caravan tour during the bubble. Cause I, I, I would watch that. I would love a Diego Castro uh, directed uh, documentary of his uh, travels. Sort of man uh, versus wild <laughs> up the Northwest coast. Yeah. Oh, I could, I could see him, you know, perched on a beach up in, uh, up in Geraldton or, you know, uh, or maybe even on the beach, you know, him and his family, you know, uh, having a, having some fun times with the dolphins up at monkey Mile would have been uh, just wholesome family uh, fun. Um, but yeah, I think moving back to that point, I th- there's, I'm definitely sure there's part of glory, which was frustrated with Castro, um, you know, not just with the recent contract negotiations, but like you say, the, 
you know, his disappearance during the bubble. In fact, he did enjoy uh, these quite uh, elongated uh, off-seasons and pre-seasons uh, prior to Tony Popovich's uh, arrival at the club, although it should be pointed out that the club effectively did sign off on those. So, um, and, you know, if... Nice work if they, you can get it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, if they were... I'm sure there was a part of him which was frustrated with, with you know, the fact that he did take a bit of extra time off. Uh, but, you know, he, hey, they had to sign off on it, so you can only be so angry at something that you've uh, kind of approved. Uh, I've, I, def- I think a lot of... I, it, like you say, said earlier, Diego is a bit of an enigma, you know. He is quite a private person by all accounts. Uh, I don't think he particularly likes... Fame, but he also seems to be a very thoughtful person. And you know, when he has penned these, you know, this you know these these articles uh, that have appeared on, on the PFA website, he seems like a very intellectual, very cerebral person who you know quite emo- emotional. Which you know, and you see all of that on the pitch as well. You know, he's mm-hmm. a very intelligent, very emotional guy on the field as well as off it. Um, I I'd never really was from like personally I never really felt um upset over his decision to forego the bubble I think you know it was a global pandemic everyone was scared no one really knew what was going on um at that point and I think a lot of us still really don't know what's going on uh but for me you know I think you've got to do right but in, in that situation he had to do right by his family I can understand him not wanting to leave his family, you know, in a foreign land in the middle of a global pandemic um, by themselves for, you know, two months just so he could play football. Um, maybe he felt, you know, he just he just wanted some family time at that point. And I do get, you know, he's contracted to the club. Uh, you know, he did have a job to do, but I feel, you know, there's, uh, you know, you need to take care of your family. You know, family comes first, especially you know, given the events of the past 18 months. I was, I'm sure there are lots of Glory fans who were very upset that he, you know, chose family over his job in that uh, circumstance. I'm sure there are many people within the club who were furious with that decision. Um, But it was never something I never, I personally never felt it was right to, you know, completely judge him because, you know, like I said, he's a very private person. We don't know. Mm. We probably never know never will know exactly why he took that caravan tour of WA. Um, if, if anything, it just kind of adds to the legend of Diego. Um, you know, who is he? No one, I'm not sure. No one, at, many people outside of the club really know who he is. I think he keeps quite a, you know, tight knit in a circle. Um, but yeah, I've, I never felt he was unreliable. I felt like there were all the, always these, um, you know, there was always a bit of a myth that Diego was an unreliable, was unreliable, you know, in terms of, you know, his late starts to the season, you know, the, his decision to forego the end of the 2019-20 season. But I think when he played, you know, he was anything but unreliable. Mm, absolutely. I mean, the, the uh, output on the field always seemed to outweigh the sort of uh, privileges he was sometimes granted off it. I did laugh in his farewell letter where he specifically thanked Kenny Lowe. Uh, maybe for those relaxed pre-seasons and allowing him a couple of months to play himself into shape. But amongst the fans, you say this sort of legend is only added to his uh, exalted status. Uh, 
where does he rank in kind of the the pantheon when it comes to all time Perth Glory greats, but also all time I guess fan favourites and you know sentimental favourites? I think personally for me, the Perth Glory Mount Rushmore starts with Diego Castro. He is one. He's number one on the list of Perth Glory players to ever you know, take the field, to ever score in front of a shed, to ever you know to to well to win a trophy as he did with the uh, Premier's Plate a few years ago. Uh, I think, you know, I have a lot of respect for the likes of Jamie Harnwell, Scott Miller, Bobby Despotovsky, Gareth Navin, Jason Pekovic. Uh, I believe I'm missing someone. I think I said Maureen Despotovsky. Uh, uh, but, yeah, I have a lot of respect for the NSL legends uh, and, you know, the previous A-League a- legends of the club. Uh, I, you know, I grew up watching, you know, Bobby Despotovsky and Damien Maury and Jamie Harnwell, you know, at Perth Oval, mm-hmm. as it was known back then. Uh, I still go back and rewatch games every now and then. For me, Diego is the best player to ever pull on the purple shirt. He is. He was an, uh, you know, a fantastically talented player. Someone who was, you know, could, you know, well, he came to the A League from La Liga uh, for, and you know, had a pretty solid season in La Liga before he arrived at, in Perth. Despite his advancing years, uh, for me, he is just. Yeah, he he was magnificent. It was an absolute pleasure to watch El Maestro. You know, week in, week out, strut his stuff, and like you say, you know, he was given all these affordances off the field. You know, with the late preseason starts, but you know, even with those late preseason starts, he'd come in and he'd just start bossing the game. He'd still take over games. He, he couldn't do it for as long because the fitness wasn't there, but he just had this talent that we, you know, that we couldn't, um, you know, that was just so far above the rest of the league. But even though he was coming from a much lower fitness base, he could just bend games to his will. You know, he could, you know, still produce these magical moments. And it was, um, there's never really been a player like him at Glory. I think Despotovsky was probably the one closest. He was this kind of mercurial uh, striker, you know, in a, you know, I guess in a bit of a Dennis Bergkamp mould. But, you mm-hmm. know, he also scored a bag of goals as well, in addition to being this uh, creator who, you know, helped Damien Morris score. A, a similarly large bag of goals. And I think I think Castro, a lot of the glory legends who have been at the club have been Australian. Castro is, you know, he's the, the guy from Spain. He came in as this, you know, uh, you know, Spanish lad who had played in La Liga, you know, he was kind of in his mid-30s when he first joined the club. I think when he signed, there wasn't too much fanfare, you know. There was a lot made in the local media. Oh, he's... He actually he scored at uh, at the Bernabeu against Real Madrid. That was his kind of selling point, and uh, you know it took him a few games to hit his stride. I think I seem to recall there was a about eight or nine games into his career at Glory, he had this fantastic performance against Adelaide United, where they won three one, and that was the first time I think a lot of Glory fans started to realise there's a there's a pretty good player we've uh, managed to secure, and then. Uh, think his no matter what had what would happen you know at this point a lot of glory fans didn't know you know were not to know that Castro was going to stay for another five years and go down as an all-time legend but at that you know by the end of his maiden campaign he'd already written himself into Perth glory folklore that was the campaign you know where Kenny Lowe's team were maybe not playing their best football um, and then, you know, they started pretty slowly and then they won 11 of their last 12 games to make the finals. Castro ended up winning uh, the Johnny Warren medal that season. Mm-hmm. Um, he 
was magnificent in that do-or-die game against Melbourne City, uh, where they needed a win to basically, uh, you know, secure their spot in the finals. And he he had he had an assist, and he had that absolutely magical volley at the shed end, which I can still remember. You know, Mike Cockrell's commentary call of that is simply splendid. He, uh, mm-hmm. I, I was in the press box for that game. I had a perfect view of that volley, and as soon as it came off his foot, you knew it was going bottom corner. It was. Magical, and I think that was when every Glory fan knew for sure. Like this guy is not just a good player, but he is possibly the most talented player to ever play for the club already. And he went about cementing that status over the next, you know, five or six seasons. Um, and every year, it kind of this love for Diego grew. Uh, there's a there's a, a really important thing I think a lot of Eastern states people don't know about. Western Australians is we, Western Australians are very parochial. We feel, mm-hmm. you know, there's a real sense among, especially among the psych, psyche of WA sports fans. We feel like if you look at AFL, if you look at cricket, if you look at football, um, it generally, WA sports fans generally feel that the Eastern states media don't really pay attention to the big names of you know, coming out of Western Australia. You see it all the time in the footy with the Eagles and Dockers. Um, there's always a lot of Eagles and Dockers fans, you know, wondering why their teams aren't getting credit from, you know, from from the uh, Melbourne media. Um, and it's very similar for football. There's a lot of Glory fans who feel Castro is one of the, you know, is, you know, one of the top three A-League players of all time. And they definitely feel that, you know, this, the, the, you know, the media machine over East has not given him his due credit. I think if Castro, I, I mean, I certainly feel, you know, the way that he is, his kind of departure has kind of unfolded over the last, you know, couple of weeks, there hasn't really been too many, you know, too many, you know, tributes to him in the media. It kind of feels like another just, if there's almost a sense that it's just another player who has retired. I mean, we're talking about Diego Castro. We're talking about, a guy who dominated the league for five or six years, who was a Johnny Warren medalist, who helped Glory win their first, you know, piece of silverware in, you know, in more than a decade, who, you know, who almost hand, single-handedly dragged Glory back into relevance at times. You know, he was just such such a force of nature. And you know, Glory fans loved that they had a player they could call their own who hadn't played for any of the Eastern States teams for any of those other teams, I'm using quote, air quotes there. I'm sure um, the listeners obviously won't be able to see that. But, you know, like I said, WA people were very parochial. Diego was, he may have come from Spain, but he was a WA boy to Perth Glory fans. Well, now that Diego has stepped away from the club, I've got two, one big thing. Is there any chance of we see him in another A-League club's shirt or is that a no-go? I think we could uh, you know he obviously loves australia a lot um you know it i have always got the sense this off season but you know from everything that was reported uh over here he was probably going to head back to you know spain uh you know for family reasons and that's fair enough but you know i did see you know someone saying today uh you know maybe he'll go to india play for a few months then maybe he'll come back head back to the A-League at some point. It would be it'd be very weird seeing Diego Castro in a non-Perth Glory shirt, if uh, but playing in the A-League. It, just, 
it just wouldn't feel right. It would be like when Ben Cousins ended up at uh, Richmond. Yeah. For, that didn't is, end uh, out well. Yeah, no, I did not. Nothing, not <laughs> Ben Cousins' uh, story has uh, fortunately not had very many happy endings so far. Um, and, yeah, I think, like, Diego obviously is notched down from Ben Cousins in terms of importance to the WA sporting public, but to Glory fans, you know, it would it would kill them, I think, if uh, Diego was to, you know, maybe join a Sydney or a Melbourne, especially a Sydney or a Melbourne. I think if it was someone like a, uh, you know, maybe if it was a MacArthur or Central Coast or Newcastle, uh, Glory fans would be a bit upset, but they'd also be quite happy to, they would welcome Diego back with open arms to an extent if he, uh, you know, played against them uh, at HBF Park. But I think if he went to a big, a big Melbourne side, like if he went to Melbourne City or Melbourne Victory or, or Sydney FC or even Brisbane Raw, because there's a lot of Glory fans who obviously still hold a grudge against Brisbane Raw. <laughs> For that grand they, final, yeah, okay. They, yeah, there is a that, – that Glory-Brisbane rivalry has kind of simmered and gone down over the last few years, but I think – if I could, Glory fans still have very hard feelings about that grand final, understand and understandably too. Uh, if Diego pulled on a Brisbane Raw orange shirt, he I don't think Glory fans would take that news very well at all. I think they would boo him mercilessly. So uh, can he only tarnish his legacy if he goes on to play for another Australian club? I mean, there's I think the one that makes most sense to me, and I don't think it's going to happen at all. I think you'll probably go play overseas uh, back home or in the Middle East or something. But Popovich at Melbourne Victory might be a draw. Did those two have a strong relationship or uh, did, you know, Diego grow to resent him and his exacting methods? Um, oh, I think I think there's a lot of respect between uh, Diego and Tony. I, I can't really comment on the personal nature, but, I mean, Di- Diego was fantastic in that that season where Glory did win the Premier's play, yeah. uh, we kind of forget he missed the start of a season. Um, and then he went on to score seven goals and have six assists in 20 games after that. Um, I actually think he was, as, I think we kind of forget, he was very, very good under Tony Popovich. Um, the 2019-20 season, um, he scored seven, he had scored four and had seven assists in 18 games um, before the league and the country and the world went into lockdown. <laughs> Um, and I had, I actually remember saying him and Diamante were neck and neck for the Johnny Warren medal at the start, at the kind of midway point of that 2019 20 season. He was, it was a bit of an underwhelming um, performance from Glory that season as they looked to go one better under Tony Popovich. But I thought Castro kind of carried them through games at times. He was, he didn't look like a 38 year old that season. Obviously, what followed next was, you know, disappointing from uh, a lot of angst. Uh, a lot of angles. Um, the fact that he didn't rejoin the club was, you know, it was sad that he didn't, um, that he opted out of joining joining them in the, in the hub. Uh, but I think that's kind of, like you say, I don't think anything can tarnish his reputation amongst Glory fans unless he joins another club. Um, I think, you know, I think some Glory fans have maybe just forgot how good he was. Like everyone loves Castro. Um but I think there's, you know, not just Glory fans, but A-League fans as well. He was so good under Tony Popovich. Um, you know, the way he, but when they won the, you know, the Premier's plate, the way he combined with Andy Keogh, um, he was so, you know, he'd pop up on the left and he'd open up space for Davidson to drive forward from wing back, 
Davidson was excellent that season. Many pop up on the right, and Ivan Franjic would do the same. And he was so always so good at bringing players into that game. He was for, for um, pretty much his entire glory career. He was the, he bore the sole creative burden for Perth Glory. You know, they never really had another good creative midfielder to pair him with, apart from Georgie Shandl, the Hungarian who was only there Castro's first season. Um, you know, everything revolved around Castro and um, certainly under Popovich, that was very much the case. Um, did Melbourne actually have any foreign spots left? I mean, they can always create one by getting uh, mutual with someone, but... I, I uh, think they do. I, I have to check that. But uh, I think the cap space would be a, a yeah. more uh, pressing concern than the and you're uh, not the bringing in a, Yeah. And you're not bringing in a player like Castro unless you're paying him good money, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think... Um, going back to kind of your original point, I do think that maybe, you know, Tony Popovich, if I could definitely see him popping up at Melbourne Victory. I think I think it's a very, very low pop probability, but is de- he's definitely the sort of player that I think pop- that Popovich team needs. I don't know whether a 40-year-old Diego Castro would be as effective as a 37-year-old Diego Castro was uh, under Tony Popovich, but... Looking at Melbourne teams that's currently constructed, there is, I do kind of wonder where, if Popovich has learnt his previous lessons um, from, you know, his time at Perth Glory, um, where they kind of really struggled to break down compact defences, um, you know, teams that would sit behind the ball. Uh, at Castro, you know, with his brilliance, with his ability to create both with the ball and without the ball to find these little pockets of space, uh, you know, even against compressed defences, um, and you, you know, you combine him with like some Marco Rojas and Robbie Cruz and Chris Economides, uh, and yeah, that would be that would probably if he did end up there, I think it would be very hard to stop Melbourne victory, you know, for the title this season. But obviously, it all depends on first of all whether Castro has any interest in ever returning to play for Melbourne. Maybe. Like I said, we don't really know too much about the man. Maybe he does consider Perth to be the only Australian mm-hmm. team he'd consider playing for. Uh, but yeah, I think you know if he did, if it there was a you know scenario where he did end up with a victory and playing for Tony Popovich, I by all accounts they got on fine during their time uh, at Perth, and I think he could really unlock some things. Um, even you know, even at this age, you know, maybe he wouldn't be a you know play 90 minutes every week guy. In fact, I'm pretty sure he wouldn't. But, you know, to have that up your sleeve maybe for 30 minutes at the end of a game would be make Melbourne victory very, very dangerous. Well, you raised the point about the visa spots. And just to clarify that, uh, there are there is one spot available, but everyone expects it to be filled by this Italian striker, Francesco yes. Maggiotta, who is surely to be announced um you know, in the next few days. So uh, I forgot about Rojas being a Kiwi. There you go. There is, a, there probably isn't a spot for him if uh, if a striker is that last visa place. Bakua, I'd cut you off there. Well, no, I was just with Castro heading out the door. There is a new bigger rival, shiny English striker by the name of Daniel Sturridge. Can he fill the boots of Diego Castro? Is that is are we going to see some magic or is he? Is it going to be an injury riddle season? What are, what are our predictions? I think Sturridge is, he's in terms of, he's obviously, you know, he is a great replacement for Castro in terms of marketing ability. 
you know, um, off the field, you know, the fact that they can now say, well, we've lost Castro, but we have Daniel Sturridge. Uh, there are a lot of Liverpool fans, a lot of English Premier League fans in Perth who will, you know, Tony Sage has already, spe- you know, hinted that, hey, if there's demand for 30,000 tickets for Daniel Sturridge's opening game, we will move it to Optus Stadium if we can. Um, so from a, you know, off the field point of view, it's a very good replacement to, you know, play replace the club's greatest ever player with a guy who, you know, five years ago was a had a, was enjoying a frankly brilliant uh, English Premier League season. Uh, obviously, on the field is where his true, where Daniel Sturridge's true worth will be measured. Uh, he is the sort, you know, he's a very different player to Diego, um, and that's kind of why I'm a bit worried about his impact. I'm obviously not questioning Sturridge's ability. He's a fantastic mm-hmm. footballer when fit, and that is the biggest caveat when fit, you know, are we going to get Daniel Sturridge who, you know, he says he's in great shape. Uh, you know, he says he's been working with personal trainer. He says he feels awesome. Um, he's, he says he's really keen to play football again. You know, if his body, you know, can hold up, I think he's going to, I think he's going to be really good. I think he's going to be a very good uh, addition to this Perth glory team. I think he could really, you know, he putting him next to Bruno Fornaroli is going to be fun. Like that is something I'm really, I'm just looking forward to watching Sturridge. The biggest thing for me, and I've said this so many times, you know, for years, and I've even mentioned it today, you know, Diego Castro for pretty much his entire time of Earth glory, he bore that sole creative burden. He was the, you know, the sun in the Perth glory solar system because everything revolved around him. You know, if they, for all the, um, Fantastic players they have kind of put with Castro, like Andy, like Andy Kyo, Adam Taggart, uh, Chris Economides, Bruno Fornaroli. They're very different types of players to Castro. And even when they all played with him at various stages of Castro's glory career, Castro was still the creative outlet. He was still the guy who was, you know, he was getting the ball. He was doing the hard yards. He was creating. Mm-hmm. He really never got too much help, even, you know, the season, you know, the seasons under Popovich. It was still very much the game plan was get the ball to Diego's feet, everyone run off him, he'll create something, we'll go from there. Sturridge is not Diego Castro. He's a very different type of player to Diego Castro. He is not necessarily someone who can create the ball at his feet in the same way as Diego Castro does. Sturridge, you know, he's an you know excellent dribbler. He's very athletic. He's going to be a very different player to Castro, but he's not. I don't think he's going to be someone who's going to get the ball to feet, who's going to slow the game down, who's going to draw defenders in, who's going to roll past them, who's going to move inside, find these little pockets of space, you know, get into the half spaces, wait for a teammate teammate to overlap, wait for a defender to come at him and then push the ball past them. When I think of Daniel Sturridge, I think about, you know, sorry to use the buzzword, but pace and power. Um, mm-hmm. He um, He's very, and that's, you know, he's very good at using pace and power. He is a, you know, that's what I love about watching Daniel Sturridge. He's a he's a very classy footballer, but he's not the playmaker that Diego Castro is. And, that's and on that I note, Ben, I did want yep. to ask, I mean, just how many forwards can Richard Garcia cram into one Perth Glory lineup? Because there's Fornaroli, Keo, Sturridge, Sardinero. You know, that's a lot of a lot of strikers. And not a lot of as you're hinting at with this answer, not a lot of creativity, not a lot of service. And that was, that's what worries me about this season because we saw a lot last season about this sort of Richard Garcia 4-2-4 sort of slinging crosses into the box. It was uh, 
trying to hit a nail with a sledgehammer at times. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, even last season, like you say, in Garcia's system, it was still, let's give the ball to Castro. I know that was still the game plan. It was still revolving around Castro's ability to create. And at his age, that was less of a, you know, less of a given. He was still very good at doing it. That was a fantastic, there was a game late in the season against Adelaide where he, you know, basically created the middle, uh, the winner from the middle of the park on a breakaway with this, you know, very subtle piece of, you know, brilliance where he's just kind of, you know, his, where his body shape has just managed to allow him to get past Ben Halloran and then he split the lines of a pass. Um, and like you say, you know, all those names, Fornaroli, Kyo, uh, Sturridge, Sardinero, who I'm really intrigued to watch, they're all strikers. You know, Sardinero, by the sounds of it, can play out on the wing. I've heard rumours that he will be, you know, lining up as a 10, which, you know, might go some way to replacing that vacuum, that lack of a, a you know, of a 10. But if you look at all the Perth Glory central midfielders, it's Brandon O'Neill, who is, you know, he we Brandon O'Neill is a pretty strong central midfielder at A-League level, but he's not creative. He's very much, I'm going to get the ball, I'm going to keep the ball, I'm not going to turn the ball over, I'm going to be very, you know, I'm, good at breaking up attacks. I'm a good passer, but he's not a very creative player. He's he's a turbocharged version of, I guess, Neil Kilkenny type of player we saw. I've obviously rate O'Neill sure. a lot high, higher than Kilkenny, but it's he's not someone who's going to be able to create, create from open play, who is going to draw defenders in with dribbling. Um, and then you've got Mitch, they've just signed Mitch Oxborough, who I'm intrigued to see how he fits in. Um, you know, there's he was he's someone who I remember as a teenager, there were always lot, there was a lot of talk about how this this Mitch Oxbridge kid's really talented. And he hasn't really lived up to it, but we've we've seen glimpses. But I, you know, I still don't know whether you can count on him at A League level. Um, and then there's um, Liam. Uh, is it Liam Bodnar? Uh, I'm actually not sure. The uh, uh, Luke Bodnar, perhaps. Luke Bodnar. I called him Eddie Bod. Bodnar by accident last year. If you say enough names, you'll figure it out. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I'm just spraying darts at the board. Uh, Yeah. But yeah, Bodnar, you know, he, you know, he, I thought he did all right last season in Central Mitchell, but he is a centre-back by trade. Uh, You know, Callum Timmons, I think, is quite a tidy player, Um, but he's not someone I, you know, who I kind of looked at last season and thought he is definitely the answer to their you know, creative midfield problems. And then you've got Osama Malik as well, who is definitely not the, you know, the, uh, the solution to that, to that issue. You know, he, I still think Malik is a center back who gets played in the middle of a park and kind of looks lost and looks like he's, you can see the kind of cogs turning in his brain every time he's playing as a holding midfielder. Um, So yeah, I I just don't know how they're going to create, like they have all these forwards, but, and I've been saying this for, you know, all off season, what are Perth Glory going to do to try and sign, you know, a central midfielder who can create from deep? And, you know, I don't, I think... Rather thin on the ground in Australian football, those kinds of players. They are, they are, they very much are. I think, you know, Mustafa Ramini was kind of a one who was everyone who, uh, you know, I think Glory were linked with him at one point and that would have been interesting. I haven't really followed Ramini's career in Europe too closely. Obviously went from being a, know quite a exciting attacking player during his time for central at central coast to a much more reserved deeper midfielder so i don't know how 
he would have factored in had they managed to sign him, whether he would have helped. I just haven't seen enough of him. But there, like you say, you know, Australia has a real real dearth of um, these, you know, six, these sixes. You know, there's not many, you know, midfielders who can create from deep. You know, Yugarkovic is one of them. Um, and even he didn't have, you know, probably his best season last year. So, you know. Antonis so another. So, Western Sydney are just hogging these guys. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Leaving scraps Antonis, yeah. Week. Antonis and Antonis was the other one I was thinking of, and I think Glory were were trying to sign him at one point as well, which I was, you know, you know, as someone who watches a lot of Perth Glory games, I would have very much liked to see Terry Antonis in that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah, like I think that kind of just speaks to a bigger, wider problem that you know that is uh, very you know pertinent in the Australian game. Where are the good central midfielders? The Socceroos um, are asking that same question, Ben. Yes, <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, we've we've hit on the common theme that I think all FNR shows end up coming back to. But uh, Ben, we better <laughs> leave it there uh, and let this to be a demonstration to. Uh, those parochial uh, Western Australians that the East Coast media does respect <laughs> Daniel, uh, Diego Castro's legacy and, and the Perth glory. And we're excited to see Daniel Sturridge if anyone can get him the ball. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say if anyone could get over the border. <laughs> <laughs> That's the That's other issue. Well. <laughs> a topic for I'll, another day. I'll see if I can ask Mark McGowan. <laughs> yeah, put in a good word, please. Uh, ben Smith, thank you so much for joining us. No worries. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Bacoa. Uh, Ben Smith from 7 West Media. We're going to take a break. Got a little bit of Europe chat before we go on the other side. Back for the final time this evening on Twilight Football and Pakur. We've got to turn our attention abroad to the European stuff. Uh, We've got some topics to hit off. Champions League uh, starts back up again tomorrow. There's a Mo Salah uh, wanting a £400,000 per week contract extension by all reports, which has uh, put a few noses out of joint in the Liverpool hierarchy. A lot of monocles popping off in outrage into their champagne glasses. And then uh, there's the situation at Manchester United with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer up against the wall again. But when his back is against the wall, he seems to pull out these outrageous results in big games that saves his job time and time again. Where do you want to start? Well, let's go with Ole. Because my thing is, with your statement just then about he always you know, pulls out a win when he needs to, I feel like the game on the weekend was the game he typically would win. And mm. then it would be all glory days and it would be all happy again. I think Man United have a massive problem and I think that getting Ronaldo in there this season has really highlighted their lack of cohesion as a team. They are a team with tremendous players who play some beautiful football, but together they are not good enough and Ole is not good enough to unite them, even though maybe, because like you, they have like five attackers playing at the exact same time. like. And Oli needs to make some big decisions real quickly before this season spirals out of control. It was rough watch against Leicester City. That's for damn sure. I mean, Harry Maguire looking like he was playing on one leg, fought for three of the goals. Paul Pogba speaking after the game about, you know, we need to find the problem and fix it when the problem might actually be him. You know, Cristiano Ronaldo hands on his hips, passenger again. Is Ole the problem? Is it the players? I'm I'm keen to get your take. See, Josh, they had 
Ronaldo, Sancho, Bruno and Mason Greenwood all starting against Leicester. I think that's that's an Ole problem. They they cannot all be playing at the exact same time. There is no cohesion. There are these there are players who do not work hard enough defensively mm. and they get caught out all the time. You need there needs to be a more balanced midfield and that ultimately rests on the shoulders of Ole. He needs to get the players working harder and he needs to have a team that's far more balanced. If Mason Greenwood or Sancho needs to sit on the bench for some of these games to get another holding midfielder in there, that's what they're going to have to do. Is Sancho and Greenwood uh, going to the bench the easy route, though? Is there not a bigger problem in the number nine position? Oh, certainly, Josh. But... Are you? Do you think Ollie's going to tell him? Sorry, my guy. It's and, time to sit the bench today. And there's the Ollie problem. Yeah, and and that that is his the burden of Ronaldo and stuff like that. That's his responsibility because taking the Man United job is a big. It's one of the biggest jobs in football. You know what it comes with. So, I don't. If you don't have a manager in that position who is willing to say, you know what, you need to sit on the bench. He is not the manager for that club at the mm. end of the day, especially when they are trying to win the league again and get back to the F- Ferguson days. That's that's their goal. You need a manager who fits that caliber, and Ole is not it. It would be a bit expensive to sack him, but uh, United have thrown good money after bad over the last few years, so I don't think that's the issue. I think it's the the climb down from Ole being the answer and giving him a three-year contract extension and then deciding that, you know, he's not good enough. Is there, is there a coach who you think would come in and, and change things at United? Because for me, I'm tempted to recommend the Antonio Conte route. It's, it, easy it's a little bit masochistic moment, on, on my part, or sadistic, I should say, because mm-hmm. he is someone who will come in, crack the whip and make the players suffer. But he's also someone who's clearly demonstrated he can win the league in a season or two seasons? Particularly with a team that needs a little bit of just stability, like comfortable mm-hmm. play, some real simple football and just defend. And that is what I feel like. I constantly watch Man United. I'm like, you guys aren't defending as a team. You defend as individual players and that's how half their goals come about. And they cry in, they require individual brilliance to when they're going forward. So Conte would be good, but I don't think he's, I don't think he's the man for Man United because they have shown that they want a long-term manager. They aren't in this habit of going for one year, two years after the Moyes era and stuff like that. They want a long-term solution, and I don't think Conte is that solution for them. I wonder where that that next coach is going to come from there because it's tough seeing the available options and conceiving of somebody who has the kind of reputation and strength of personality to be able to handle guys like Cristiano Ronaldo, like that's a tough ask. And I'm not sure if there is a manager who could come in, be the the long-term choice, but also have the dressing room pull to be able to do things like bench Cristiano when you need yeah. to. I think that we're... For Man United, they are going to have to wait till the end of this season to see what the market looks like for, you know, for managers because I think they are going to have to buy somebody out because they've shown that they aren't going to fire Ole at you know in the middle of the season. That's not that's not their style. They don't want that extra drama, you know. They are a club of drama, but that's the drama they're after. 
Um, so we'll get to the end of the season, and I think there are going to be some some big changes at the end of the year because there are some managers in positions that just aren't right at the moment, um, and it might be their opportunity, Man United, to get someone who's more of their caliber. Well, you reckon you should uh, stick with Oli, give it Oli till the end of the season, and then see what's available rather than try and make a, a rash uh Sacking, to be completely honest, and uh, cave into the the will of the bang masses <laughs> who are calling for Ollie's head. Uh, we should talk about uh, speaking of tough financial decisions. Liverpool and Mo Salah. He's got eighteen months left, roughly, on his contract. Four hundred thousand pounds a week is the asking price for a guy who is what is he? Twenty nine. Twenty nine. Yep. In the prime of his career, maybe the best player in the world at the moment on form. If you're Liverpool. And you've got Sadio Mane, Roberto Firmino and Salah all reaching that age at the same time. Do you double down and go all in on a guy who's soon to turn 30 and break your entire wage structure? Is he worth it? I think so. I think that Firmino is is going. I think he's the easy one to go from those three. Mm. And I think that leaves them options, you know, to get some a little bit younger um, and free up to be able to afford that Salah contract. I think the difference, the big difference with the Salah contract is that he is the best. He is comfortably one of the top three best players in the world at the moment. The way he's playing with his feet, he has added a new level to his game at 29 years of age. That's incredible. You don't really see that too often. And the difference when I look at as an Arsenal fan with that contract, the Aubameyang contract is Aubameyang was good, great in the Premier League. But he wasn't one of the like he was. You weren't making your starting eleven in world football with Aubameyang. You're gonna do that with Salah, and that team loses a big identity if they decide not to pay him that four hundred. I think they should be patient, and here's why: because where is he going to go? Who is offering Mo Salah four hundred thousand pounds per week? Newcastle. <laughs> Maybe he's going to want to go to a club who's in the Champions League. That is true. PSG, a little bit crowded over there. Madrid and Barcelona, financial troubles. Especially Barcelona, there's no way. Maybe Madrid, maybe. But they've got their uh, their sights set on uh, on Kylian Mbappe and on Erling Haaland. Going to a rival Premier League club would be pretty extraordinary. No, no. He's not like that. Come on. He's already been to two. He doesn't need to go to anywhere else. Back to Chelsea. No, could you imagine? Prove himself. I think that uh, certain EQs might cry if that happens, so let's not. <laughs> let's not even go there. I mean, where does he go? go so this this is why I think they should be patient, play a little bit of chicken here, because there's 18 months. It's not as if he, this is an Mbappe situation and his contract is expiring end of the season. So they've got a little bit of time, and I do believe that Liverpool won't run in a kind of very aggressively rational way, and they're not going to be breaking their, their wage structure on a whim, it's going to be a long and considered decision. So I wouldn't expect to see that contract signed until next summer, next year, northern see, summer. They they say aim high, and then if you fall somewhere, you know, what is it, aim for the, the stars and if you fall at the moon or something like that? Is that the saying or something like that? Or <laughs> yeah, aim for the yeah, moon and the stars? It's, it's one of those like sayings, that. I don't know. I, the 400, I, I think it's, you know, a far, far dream. But I do think, you know, But if he's the best player in the world, I mean, that's what the best player in the world gets paid. The three fifty mark, you know, is uh, might be a little bit more doable for them. 
But I, I just, I think that it would be, it would be, un like not wise at all to not sign him because they need him. Yeah. Liverpool for me are my favourites to win the league. I just they play a beautiful brand of football, and Mo Salah is the reason for that. He's so consistent in the way he's just dribbling past people at the moment. It'd be crazy not to at least get this contract negotiation started strong and have a real firm belief that you are going to keep him and figure out a middle ground for the you know for the salary. It's a tough, tough decision facing. Uh... The Liverpool FC directors and, you know, they, they don't have Michael Edwards in charge anymore. They're transfer guru. So maybe we'll see a change in strategy or maybe it's just too terrifying a prospect to lose this guy. So they will have to pay I'm, him what he asks. I know we, you know, we, we brush past Madrid, but Madrid have been crazy. They will continue to be crazy. They will spend money even though they don't have the money. So if Salah looks like he's on the market, I have no doubt the Florentino Perez will just go, phew. I'll take that. I'll add him to my chest as well. Mbappe to Madrid seems like a fait accompli at this point. And, you know, we'll, football is a crazy business, so that might change. Gosh, the Spanish banks will give our money to anybody, okay? Look at Barcelona. <laughs> so they'll take him too. But Mbappe to Madrid is looking more and more likely on oh, a free at the end of the season. Could that then open up the possibility of PSG for Salah? Because they would pay him 400 500 whatever you want, man. It's just you, money, money, money over at PSG. Thing- the and maybe Messi PSG in a false though, nine role, then you got Mbappe, Messi, Salah, and you're playing fantasy football again. I just, I couldn't see his style of football fitting with PSG. And I know that's a weird thing to say because PSG will like are literally Real Madrid at the moment who just buy anybody and whatever. Hmm. But I still just, I think the seller, because he's playing such great football at the moment and he's not just scoring goals, I think that he it would go against his own nature to go and play at PSG. And not be the star, you know. I think PSG is just a little bit too far out of reach out there. I get the impression that Mo Salah loves playing for Liverpool a little bit too much to leave. And, you know, it's a perfect situation for him. It's a perfect system. It suits his style. I I think he will resign. And that's why I think the club can play hardball a little bit at the moment until the summer. And until that, that... contract clock really starts ticking down i think they can probably you know save themselves a bit of money here and they might need to because liverpool's owners have been essentially from a transfer uh fees perspective running the club um at a neutral net spend for uh, quite a few years now they are not big spending owners they are Guys it's who are trying to play money ball with Liverpool, and I, you know, they're like like they're running a baseball team. They're trying to find the inefficiencies. Like the and, Boston Red Sox. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that's same owners, so yeah. it's the same approach. So I just can't see them splashing silly money around when they know they can probably squeeze him a little bit here. Yeah, it's not, it's not good. I don't. I highly doubt it will be the four hundred, you know, mm. thousand that he he'll, he'll be he'll get. But I think he'll be a healthy you know, paycheck that us simpletons would dream of getting in our bank account. Yeah, can't even imagine. Uh, Pakua, Champions League coming up uh, tomorrow and Thursday morning. Atletico Madrid, Liverpool in Madrid. Uh, Do you see this going the same way as it did last time these two clubs met or is Liverpool just too good at the moment? I think Liverpool's too good. I really think that Liverpool are going to 
are going to comfortably win this. I, I, I trust them at the moment. I love their form. I love the way they're playing. Um, it reminds me of when they won the leagues and when they won the Champions League. So I feel good about them beating Atletico Madrid. And I think that some other teams in their group would appreciate them beating Atletico Madrid as well. PSG, RB Leipzig, no Neymar for PSG. I think this could be a tough one for them. Uh, I think that too. Um, I think the Leipzig are always a tough opponent. They play such a weird brand of football. Um, and PSG never like to play consistent football either in the Champions no. League. Season, I mean, so. you said they don't fit, doesn't fit with their style, but I don't know if they have a style. It's sort of that is a true. bit nebulous and based on the personalities They're of their They're a more styles. expensive uh, Man United. So, yeah. Well, speaking of Man United, they play Atalanta at Old Trafford. Is this going to be a classic Ole backs against the wall win or could this uh, spell the start of the downward spiral? Start, Josh. I feel like we're we're in the middle of this. Okay. <laughs> will it continue then? It will, it will certainly continue. Because uh, they have their what, fixtures, think- just, to, just on that note, Man United's fixtures over the next month or so. Yeah, I was looking Absolutely this brutal. An absolutely yeah, brutal run of games. Here we go. Atalanta, Liverpool on the weekend in the Premier League, then Tottenham the next week. Atalanta again because you've got the back-to-back um, yep. home and away match days. Manchester City, Watford. Uh, it'll be a bit easier. Oh, a little uh, bit of a reprieve. Villarreal, Chelsea, Arsenal. I'll be honest, Josh. Ole needs to win this Atalanta game if he wants to have some good, comfortable nights of sleep. Because there are there are some big losses coming, I think that Liverpool would are going to carve through Man United and Man City as well. It's a comfortable win against Arsenal at the end of that. So you know, if Ollie can ride the storm, he'll be okay. But they need to win this game if they if they want to Man United fans to not lose their minds on Twitter. Well, I think Manu just says United fans are prone to losing their minds on Twitter regardless of the result. But Pakua, uh, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your company today. And if you missed any of today's podcast, uh, including our chat with Ben Smith from 7 West Media about Diego Castro, that will be available on our pod feed very, very shortly. But Pakua, thanks to you and I'll uh, chat to you soon. Good chatting to you, Josh. Next time.